Thank you, Pastor John. I don't know that we needed to hear that story. <laughs> Are you going to tell it next service when Sherry's here? <laughs> well, thank you in, for inviting me. And if you invite me back, I'll thank you all. But I do also thank the worship team because it really helped me get into a worshipful mood. So every part of it was wonderful. There's a man by the name of, um, I've forgotten his name, should have written that down, um, Michael Hyatt. And he's written, he's, his business is he teaches a business administration, uh, things that have to do with business, especially in the organizational part of it. And I've taken three of his classes and bought two of his books, and I admire the man greatly. Uh, he's a, a child of God. And uh, one of the books that I bought was uh, kind of a planning book, or how to plan your coming year, and he called it the very Your Very Best Year Ever. And it's a great book for planning, but it's, it's not going to be your very best year ever if that's all you do, what Michael tells you to do in that book. Uh, he left out, and because it wasn't a spiritual book, but he left out the most, most important thing, to have your very best year, in fact, to have your very best life. Um, recently, I heard that a man that I don't admire, um, someone that uh, is a, a businessman masquerading as a pastor, and he packages and sells um, positivity, and he has a book, uh, your, your, your Best Life Now. So I was going to call this uh, How to Have Your Best Life, but hearing about that book, which I'll never read and haven't read, uh, but pretty sure um, does not have the formula for living your best life. So I called it a great life. The and um, this psalm, Psalm 16, you could call the whole thing a great life. Actually, I called this sermon a foundation to a great life. Psalm 16 is how to have your very best life. Psalm 16 is the great life. And as we uh, look, well, we're not going to look at the whole psalm. We don't have enough time in this day to do that. So we're going to look at four verses of the psalm that Jesse read for us. Um, let's start. Uh, we're just going to read those four psalms, uh, four verses, and this will be the foundation of a great life. These four verses, the foundation of a great life. Without this, without this foundation, you will not have your best life. You will not have a great life. It will be a second-rate life or worse than that. A mictum of David, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who have bartered for another will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. I won't read the rest, but you can in your outline to you see what the title of those sermons would be. The experience of a great life is five through eight, and then the destination of a great life is to the end of the, of the psalm. A mictum of David. Uh, you can take for granted that when you read or hear about what the superscription means that they're kind of just guessing. Nobody knows what these superscriptions mean. Most of them were musical notes, um, and they're not absolutely clear. But this is one of the clearest ones, but it has two meanings. And a hypothesis I have that I've uh, been working on for 30 years and seems to be true and, and really is true in, in every context that I've looked at it is if 
there is a word or a phrase that has two meanings in the original and in, even in the English, and the context doesn't tell you which meaning to take, and um, both of them work in the psalm, or whatever it is, it's the psalm here, that you should take both, that the Holy Spirit is giving us a two for one. So I think that's what's happening here with this word mictum. The word mictum basically means teaching, and this is a teaching psalm. It begins with prayer and it ends with prayer, but in the whole thing is a teaching. He's teaching us how to have a great life, David is. The other meaning is a precious secret, and that also applies to this psalm. This is not a secret that David is hiding and just letting a few special friends see. It's a psalm that he wrote down with the power of the Holy Spirit for generation after generation after generation to read and to understand. But it's a precious secret. Knowing how to have a great life, isn't that precious? Is there anything better? But that's the, um, that's the precious secret that he's letting us all in on. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. A great, a great life rests in God. That's the very basis of the foundation of having a great life. A great life rests in God. I'm reading, by the way, from the New American Standard. I, really, I understand that most of you have the ESV, um, which is real similar. But some of the words will be a little bit different. And I think preserve, you have another word. I don't remember what. But preserve, protect, guard, keep. They're all the same word. And it's actually a shepherd word. In Psalm 121, you have this word six times. As a, as a noun, it's uh, translated keeper. The keeper of Israel never slumbers. Um, as a verb, it's translated, I think, keep and guard, protect. Uh, the last verse, he will keep your, or he will guard your going out and your coming in both now and forever. Uh, this is just an aside. It's not what this sermon's about, but um, I'm not here all the time, so I'll just give you this aside. Notice that he will, he will guard your, your going out and your coming in both now and forever. So you got now and you have forever. Where's death? It's just the word and. You have the same thing in the other shepherd psalm, Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where do you get from, the, from now till forever. It's the word and. It's that simple. Death for the believer is just a doorway into glory. Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, he, he phrased it as our mortality uh, being swallowed up by life. That's what death is. For us, it's not death. Jesus said that whoever believes in me will never die. Uh, you will not experience death. You won't taste it. Uh, you won't uh, it won't be death to you, it will be life. Life swallowed up by life. Joy swallowed up by joy. So that's how a Christian should always face death. It's the doorway into glory. It's not the end, um, and it's not something fearsome. It is something fearsome from our perspective, but from God's perspective, it's not. He says in Revelation, um, the precious in my sight is the death of my saints. Precious is your death. That moment, whatever it is that brings it on, whatever your fiery chariot is that takes you to glory. From God's perspective, it's, it's precious. From our perspective, it's fearsome, but not to God. And it won't be once we're on the other side and through the door. That was for free. Preserve me, O God. It's a shepherd word, He's, uh, and it's a, it's a command. Isn't it? Do you ever feel like it's a little bit audacious when you see the psalmists especially commanding God? God, do this. God, get up, sometimes they say. Get out of bed. It's 
you could translate it that way. I wouldn't, but you could. Um, it, it seems audacious, but there's a reason that he can command God to protect him, to preserve him, and that's because he's his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, David said. Um, and so here, he's calling on God to be God. He's calling on the shepherd to be shepherd. He's calling on the shepherd to do what shepherds do. If you're a shepherd and you have a sheep, you protect them. You keep them from all kinds of harm. And that's the way he's asking. It's proactive. This is not a reactive prayer. We are relatively good at reactive praying. Uh, someone gets COVID. We know what to do. Pray. We don't necessarily know how to pray. Someone gets cancer. Uh, even worse, we pray. Again, nobody knows how to pray for cancer. Um, but we pray anyway, and God hears. Um, someone breaks their leg, we pray. Someone loses their job, we pray. We're good at that, at praying reactively. But this is proactive. This is praying before it happens. God protects us. Jesus taught us to do that in his prayer that he gave us. Um, Deliver us from evil. That phrase there uh, means to keep us from harm. Are you praying that God will keep you from harm every morning? If not, why not? We live in a dangerous world. I just mentioned a number of ways that we can be harmed. There are many, many, many more. We can fall off a ladder. So are you starting your day, Lord, protect me, keep me from harm? Um, or are you just taking for granted because he's a loving, a powerful God that he's going to do that? And that is true. But why not ask him? Why not just rest in him at the very beginning of the day? For I take refuge in you. There's a reason that uh, he prays this prayer, and he can command God. He says, because I take refuge in you. There's no other refuge. If you don't protect me, nothing will. There is a kind of prayer. It's also a good prayer. It's not the best prayer, but it's a good prayer, and it's the prayer of Jonah. He's been walking away from the Lord, and now he cries out in trouble and says, help me. Um, that's a good prayer because it's, it's, it's uh, focused on God. It's asking for his help, but this is a better prayer. This is a prayer uh, preserve me, protect me, guard me, because I'm with you. You're it. I can't rely on my bank account. It can be gone like that. I can't rely on my employer. They can fire me for whatever reason. In Washington, you don't have to have a reason to be fired. At least that's the way it used to be. I don't know if it still is. Um, you can't rely on your good looks. I'm, uh, I'm proof that that changes. You can't rely on your popularity. People are fickle, aren't they? One minute they're for you, the next minute they're, they're against you. Um, you can't rely on any of that. You can't rely on your skills. Sometimes they're as, as, as skilled as you are, it's not enough. And sometimes you, you lose that skill or people don't care. You can't rely on any of that. So you've got to rely on God. He's got to be your refuge, your only refuge. It's good that you have a job. It's good that you have your health, another thing you know that you can't rely on. It's good that you have that. It's good that you have a family, that you have friendships, that you have a church. But none of those things are given to us to rely on. We are to rely on God, who is the only one that can preserve us, who can all, the only one that can take us through to the next day. In the, in the, in the prayer that Jesus gave us, he, um, it was always us. Give us this day our daily bread. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not in temptation. It's us. It's a group. So it's right to start with me because like in the airplane, when that oxygen comes down, 
If you've got little kids and you start by putting it on them, you're going to pass out. So you start by putting it on you, and then you can help your kids. That's, that's this concept. God, take care of me so that I can spread um, your glory, your ministry, whatever it is, uh, to those around me, uh, to my family, to my friends, to those I work with, to the people in the church. So do that with your prayer. Um, pick a few people. I don't know, I have 50, but you don't have to have that many. I'm, I'm obsessive. It's one of the things I discovered about myself. So if I don't obsess, I don't do it. So I'm obsessive. So I have 50 people I pray for every morning. Uh, Pastor John and Sherry are on that list um, and a number of other people. It's not a long prayer. This is a very short prayer, preserve me. That's a short prayer, but there's a lot packed into that. So I pray, pray for 50 people every morning, and I'm only telling you that, that you don't have to pray for that many. Pray for 10. Pray for your family. If you're not praying for your children, who is? Is your neighbor praying for your children? Um, is your friend praying for your children? Probably not. So pray for them every morning. Uh, and those of you who are, say, teenagers or younger, are you praying for your parents? What would you do without them? Uh, pray for their protection every morning. And then for your friends for your close friends in the church. Uh, pray for your pastor, pastors. They're under a lot of spiritual attack. Um, first thing in the morning, as soon as you can. Sometimes just laying in bed before you get up. Uh, pray through a short list of people that God will protect them and that God will supply their needs. So the foundation of a great life is God. Not all the things that we are so um, inclined to make the foundation of our great life, such as money, it's a lousy foundation, and as you know, if you're very old, that money never satisfies, there's never enough. You've got a billion dollars, you need a billion more. Um, at least that's the way it appears. I'll never know that, but it looks that way. <laughs> Verse 2, a great life is a, be is a life obedient to God. So part of making God your refuge, it doesn't work if you're not obedient. Jonah was in trouble because he walked away from God. Um, and so many people uh, live a life of disobedience, but want to live in the protection of God. It doesn't work. Well, you need to be obedient. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. This is a, a place where it's important to see that when the Lord, the word Lord in capital letters is the, is the proper name of God, Yahweh. Because if you said, I said to the Lord, which our, our translations say, you are my Lord, that's, that's a possessive thing. In other words, you're my Lord said to the Lord, you're my Lord. But this, what it actually says, I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. In other words, I said to Yahweh, you're the boss. You're the one that gives the calls the shots. You're the one that gives the commands. Now notice it's, it's a relational thing. It's not a promise. It's not whatever you say I will do. That's a bad prayer. The Israelites prayed that. They said at the foot of Mount Sinai, everything you tell, you, you tell us, we will do. No, you won't. And so God proved it. He gave them laws that are really pretty simple. They wouldn't be that hard to follow, except we can't. And we won't. And they didn't. Because it was a lie. Everything that he said they, we will do, don't say that to God. Because you'll fail. But if you say that you're my boss, you're the Lord, you call the shots, that gives you room to fail. And repent. Um, I think it was the... One of the things we did this morning, uh, it was a prayer of confession, was, was all about repentance. John 1, 1 John 1, 
if you want to walk with Jesus, you've got to walk in the light. But you're going to sin. So uh, I'm writing to you so you won't sin, uh, chapter 2. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And what will that advocate do? If anyone, um, whoever confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us th- our sins. It's in us. And to forgive us and to... Um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in confession, not only do we get the forgiveness of that particular sin that we're confessing, but everything, really, because we're, we're realigning with God and saying, you're the boss. I want to do what you say. I want to be obedient at every turn, but we're not. And he leaves us that, that way, not out, but that, that way in so that we can stay in fellowship with him. And it's only on that path, the path of obedience, and when we fail to repent and confess and come back into that path of obedience, uh, that we have that firm foundation of a great life. Any disobedience from our head, Jesus Christ, from, from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit tells us an individual thing that he wants us to do and we, and we uh, resist that, Uh, takes us out of that place where we're going to have a great life. It only is in that place of obedience. I have no good besides you. Now that's a very broad thing, but um, two things. That the rich young ruler, remember, came to Jesus and said, "What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's the wrong question, because you can't. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. But Jesus said, why do you call me good? He called him good, good teacher. Only God is good, which, by the way, another freebie tells us that if Jesus uh, is not God, then he's not good. Um, but if he's good, then he must be God, that he's not just a good man. There's no such thing. That's what Jesus is saying. But he, Jesus, is God, the second person of the Trinity. And so we can rest in him to be good. That's what he was pushing the the rich young ruler. But there isn't anything that we can do. There's no good in us. Uh, uh, Jeremiah said that, I believe it's Jeremiah, that all our righteousnesses are like uh, unclean garments. All of them. The best we do in God's eyes are unclean. In the book of Job, one of them says that even the angels are not counted as perfect, as clean. Even they are not perfectly good. I don't really understand that completely. Nobody does. But we're not good. And so our goodness, our personal goodness, is only in God. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became for, sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ's death, we get his righteousness. We have no other righteousness, only in him. But there's more to it than that. Uh, apart from you, or beside you, um, I have no good. There's a lot of good in this world. When Jesus created the world, seven times he says it's good, and the last time he says it's very good. So it's good. Creation is good. But of course, it's been tainted and um, wrecked by sin. But there's still a lot of good. But apart from God, it's not good. Even the best things of this world, say uh, the relationship of a man and his wife, the, way, the relationship of a child and parent, parent and child, uh, the relation, um, uh, food, all kinds of things that are good, but without Christ, they're not good. They grow stale. They grow old. Uh, we get bored. Uh, our relationships fall apart because 
we're in disobedience to God, and that all always filters out into our relationships. So nothing stays good without being in a relationship with God. Apart from you, there is no good. So in the good life, you can't have a good life, and that's why I uh, talked about Michael and the other man at the beginning, that the good life that they promised can't be done uh, outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It can't be done. You cannot have your very best life or year or day. Verse 3, a great life acquires God's values. This is one particular way that a great life acquires God's values, but there are many things that we have to realize. We have to change our mind. Uh, Pastor Rick has been preaching on the, the um, Sermon on the Mount, and in that Sermon on the Mount, you have to come to the realization that you can't do it, that you can't make it, that you're not good enough in order to um, be part of the kingdom of God. It has to be according to the grace of God. God's values are different from our values. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Pharisee says, no, they're not. The poor in spirit are cursed. They're the worst. We're blessed. Look at our money. That teaches you that we're blessed. But no, in God's, in God's kingdom, in his, in his, from his point of view, it's the one that comes crawling into the kingdom that is blessed. And so we have to switch the way that the world thinks because the world constantly is bombarding us. Now with our electronic age, we're constantly bombarded with the values of this world and they're wrong, they're upside down and we have to switch them around and that's hard to switch those values around but this is one of those places and this is um, an incredibly important place. I don't know this congregation. In some ways, that's a good thing. In some ways, it's also, it hinders me because I don't know how many of you in here feel like you don't measure up. I don't feel like, I don't know how many of you feel like you're second class in this world, that you're not good enough. You don't measure up. You're nobody. Um, nobody cares. Uh, and this verse is for you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The word saints is, is um, someone who is holy. Holy, sanctification, saints, both in Hebrew and in Greek, it's the same word, just in different um, uh, configurations. So the saints are you. If you're a child of God, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you have received his forgiveness for your sins, you're a saint. A saint is not somebody that died and is canonized. A saint is you. Doesn't matter how old you are, or young, doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your education, doesn't matter how good you are at it, being a Christian, uh, none of us are good at it. But what matters is that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Um, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this time verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, everything's new. Um, you've been changed. So there's three, and Pastor John tells me that you know this, so um, I'll be brief, but there's three uh, parts of sanctification. The first part is when you pray to receive Christ, to receive his forgiveness. I don't know how you do it here. Um, I was four a long time ago, and everybody prayed to receive Jesus into their heart. Uh, nobody does that anymore, but that's what I did, and he came in. I asked him, came in, and uh, I was, I was um, sealed by the Holy Spirit and indwelt, and sanctified 
What does that mean? That the righteousness of Jesus became mine on the basis of the cross. So that happens the moment you turn to Christ. You're sanctified. You're a saint. But the next moment, you're not living like it, are you? It is four. I don't remember. But um, I'm sure that for all of us, uh, we don't live like the saint that we are. And so the second stage of sanctification is that progressively we become more and more like Christ throughout our life. As we walk the path that he set before me, us, as we listen to the Holy Spirit, and we become more and more like Christ. And that's that process of ongoing sanctification. The third stage comes when we die or when the rapture occurs. And that is when we're perfectly um, holy. We've become like Christ. When we see him, we'll be like him. And our holiness will be part of that, uh, being like him. So we're in that process. You're the saints. Nobody else is a saint um, except for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in the earth, again, it's not somebody dead. This is you right now. The saints in the earth, that's you. Whoever knows Christ in here, and I imagine it's most of you, um, you're the saints. So then he gives two things about that. First of all, um, they are the majestic ones. Your version, I believe, says they are the excellent ones. Both of them good translations. You are the excellent ones. You're the majestic ones. You're the heroes of this world. You are uh, the stars. You are the great ones in this world. You're having a great life uh, because you are great, because you're great based on the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the calling of the Father. You're a saint, and so you're the great ones. When God looks at it, this is what, where I was leading when I said that we take on the value system of, of God. God sees you as the majestic people of the world. You're the giants. You're the important people. You're the ones that he sees as great. You don't feel that way. You don't have to respond, but you don't feel that way. Generally speaking, and when you've failed, you feel it even less. But the truth is that you're the majestic one. You're the, the excellent one in the eyes of God. Now, here's the trick. Can we have those eyes when you look across the aisle and see the people over there? Does your mind think they're the majestic ones? They're the excellent ones? Or do you see that thing they did in the past? or that they're doing today that you don't like? Or do you see them as really a nobody, which they may see themselves as? You don't have the perspective of God if you're doing that. You don't have the perspective of, uh, of the Holy Spirit for whatever reason. But our default is to look at each other according to many things, uh, our income, employment, education, our ability to do upfront things, our skills, um, things that we can do, things that we can give. That's how we look at each other. Uh, God doesn't look at us that way. He says us from the start as majestic and excellent, and then he builds from there. Gives us a, a spiritual gift. If you're a child of God, you have a spiritual gift, and it's important to him. It's important to this body uh, that you exercise that spiritual gift and uh, you have to be allowed to do that. So it's, it's a community thing that when Paul said that you're a new creature, a new creation, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He didn't say if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. In the context, he's saying as you look around this room, do you see new creations? Um, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when you look around this room, you see God's handiwork, his creation, his creativity, his workmanship. That's Ephesians 2.10. That's got to be your perspective. And for most of us, our perspective has to change and match up with God's. First of all, with God's view of us personally, and then with God's view of those that surround us. It's very difficult. The longer you're in a church, the harder it gets. As you know each other, you know everybody's foibles, people become uh, familiar. Um, you realize that so-and-so doesn't really contribute much. Uh, somebody's unemployed, whatever it is. It's easy for us to, to change perspectives on their physical circumstances. Don't do that. And then, in whom is all my delight? So you, child of God, all God's delight is in you. Let that sink in. All God's delight is in you. Are you a saint? Yes, I just told you were, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That means all of God's delight is in you. Let that soak in. Let it soak in through the day. Let it soak in through the week. And that, um, that's how he views you. He doesn't, he's, he's not irritated with you. He doesn't just, you're not like over on the side, whereas the important people, those are precious to him. No, you are precious to him and always will be. Isn't that good? I mean, it should make you smile and it should make you uh, flabbergasted that he thinks that way about me. That's what the scripture says. In you, the saint, child of God, is all his delight. Then verse 4, a great life can be lost or missed. It's a negative uh, point to end on, but it's very important because a great life can be lost or missed, and we do lose it and miss it many times. Uh, David lost it, didn't he? He's up there on the roof. He's looking at a girl. Should have gone downstairs, talked to his 30 wives, however many he had, and left it alone, but he didn't. Right at that point, he started down a path, just a little veer at first, just looking, then acting. He veered off the path. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in southern Oregon, where my wife is from. Uh, we go down, like to go down there because there's spotty cell coverage and uh, no internet. So I always tell people, don't bother trying to get a hold of me because you won't. And so we go down there and we read and we walk and we chill out. Um, and, but my brother-in-law is a fireman, and so he has a scanner on all the time. And the day we left, uh, uh, someone had gone to visit their friend and found him dead of an overdose. 27 years old, I believe. He did not get up that morning and say, hey, I think I'll try drugs. No, it happened before that. Friend said, hey, you should try this at a party. Oh, come on. Then another, then another, then another that led to his death. That's not a great life. And at some point in that life, I don't know why, and you know, we don't know the history of this young man, but at one point he veered off from a great life um, that he could have had in Christ. And it's an illustration just showing that it's just a small step. A man a businessman flirting with his secretary. Small step. Innocent, isn't it? No, it's not. It's the first step away from the path of God, or vice versa. Works both ways. A um, little bit of cheating on your income tax. 
pretty soon you're embezzling. I mean, usually it doesn't go there, but it's a small step that takes you away from God. A little bit of gossip, pretty soon you're a gossip. A little bit of bitterness that you hang on to, pretty soon you're bitter. And that's not a great life. Bitter life is not a great life. Hanging on to, to grudges, hanging on to old pains, uh, rather than handing them over to Christ, uh, seeing what is good. Oh, that was one thing that I wanted to say about the good. I have no good besides you. In Christ, even the bad stuff gets, becomes good. When COVID first hit, uh, I made a list, I was still a pastor, made a list of all the good things about this, what's going on. Now, there's a lot of bad things, I understand that. I wasn't trying to be goofy or facetious, but there was good things. But one of the things at the top of my list was that people in the world are talking about death. Suddenly they're saying, I might die. And I thought, they need to think that, because they will. Maybe not this year, but they will die. Day is going to come when they're going to need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If they don't, um, the end is not good. So I thought that was good, but then pretty soon it became, oh, wait a minute, we we don't need to die. And then all the protocols came out that I'm not for or against. Um, It's just that people changed from I'm going to die, that I don't have to die um, as long as I do this. But you do have to die. Not necessarily from COVID, hopefully not. Um, But you will die. And so that was a good thing that came out of the pandemic. It's, you know, it's, you wouldn't want the pandemic so that people would think about death unless you're a nut. But it's, uh, it was a good thing. There were many other things, too. I learned how to use the Internet. Um, I don't know how good that was, but started preaching online with the help of my son, who I couldn't have done it without. So even in Christ, even the bad things become good. Uh, you know Romans 8.28 tells us that. Um, everything uh, works together for good to those who are uh, in Christ and called by his name. That's not how it goes, but I'm fading. All right. Verse 4, back to that. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another. Now, notice I, I leave out the word God. It's in italics. I guess ESV doesn't put it in italics, but the word God is not in David's writing. Uh, He left that open so that you can insert into there any word you want. Um, I insert the word life. Uh, The sorrows of those who bartered for another life will be multiplied. So those things that I told you about, um, the the ways downward away from God, that's bartering for another life, another kind of life, a life where you choose instead of love and forgiveness, bitterness and grudges and anger is another life, and when you borrow from it, what happens? Well, sorrows are multiplied. Not sorrows are added, sorrows are multiplied. Sorrows added would be 10 plus 10 equals 20, but sorrows multiplied is 10 times 10 is 100, times 10 is 1,000, I think. Um, Math was never my strong point. But it's multiplied, it's exponential, the sorrow grows, and didn't it with David? David went ahead with his sin, he went down that path, he got as bad as it could possibly get, murdering his friend. And faithful servant, um, besides uh, everything he'd done with Bathsheba. And what happened? Well, his, he no longer lived a great life. He, before that, he lived an anointed life, a life that was um, ordained, that was blessed, that was good, that was powerful. He could do no wrong. He was protected at every step. Um, when everybody was against him, it seemed like. He just, he just marched right through, slaying giants and lions and whatever. 
uh, after that sin, uh, the, the good life was gone. Um, he said, and when, when Nathan came to him and told him the story about the man and his little sheep, uh, and the other man that came and, and took it and, and fed it to his friends, he said, that man should die. He has to repay fourfold. Of course, Nathan said, you're the man. And he, and he, and he repaid fourfold. His baby died. Amnon, his son, died a bloody death. Absalom, his son, died a bloody death. Ahithophel, um, who I believe was um, Uriah's uh, grandfather, friend of David, hung himself. All the outcome of David's sin, which leads to the next phrase, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. When you decide to take a path away from the path that God has ordained for you, path of obedience, many people suffer. You're not the only one that suffered. All those people in David's life suffered. And it was a bloody path. Um, when you decide uh, to be... Um, to sin in any of the ways that we can sin. Um, our children are affected. Our spouses are affected, sometimes lost. Our friends are affected. Our work situation is affected. Our church is especially affected. Um, all our relationships are affected by that sin. It may seem small, but it grows. Even a sin like gossip can spread through a community and through a church through a family like a wildfire um, and affect everybody, bloody in a sense, everybody. Nor will I take their names upon my lips. I didn't write this down. <clears throat> <I'm> <clears throat> I don't do what your pastors do and bring my, my, uh, all my notes up because I get lost and stumble around. Um, but <clears throat> there's a verse that says that uh, for these sins, Certain sins, don't, there, he says like three, uh, don't let them even be named among you. Um, and then a list of sins like that, I know where this one is, it's in Galatians chapter 5. Now think about these sins, Galatians chapter 5. Oh, I'm in Ephesians, I think, man, this just doesn't look right. Okay, Galatians 5, there it is, uh, loud and clear. Verse 17 of Galatians 5. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now here's a list that he gives that shouldn't be named among us. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Three words for the same thing. As, um, then idolatry, sorcery, uh, two kind of sideline things. Then enmities, look at this, there's, I believe, six of them. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, uh, envy. And actually, there's eight. Really all in that same category. And then uh, out, um, drunkenness, carousing and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I'm not gonna exegete this and tell you what that means. 
I just want to think about these sins and how easily we get into them. You know that that middle section of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying, uh, enmity, strife, how easily that rises in a church from such small things. Everybody knows the classic, the color of the carpet choice and that, you know, divides the church and they're still angry after 25 years. Um, all of that so easily arises, but it's from small things. Um, and it destroys. It destroys families, it destroys, destroys churches, it destroys community. Drunkenness. You can't really make a good case. You could by picking out uh, certain verses from the Bible for never drinking, but you can certainly make a case for never drinking too much. Where's that line between having a glass of wine with your meal and, and being a drunkard and being drunk? Where's that line? You know, nobody knows that. Um, for that. For me, coming from a family of alcoholics, uh, that line is don't drink. Um, and I have boundaries I've set around me. Otherwise, I'd be an alcoholic. I wouldn't be here, and I'd probably be dead. Um, so there's, it's just a, a fine line. And in all of these, there's a fine line. There's a step away. It's a step away where the Spirit is telling you, don't do that. Uh, don't say that. Don't go there. Don't look at that. Um, in, in those first three, with the sexual sins, how easy it is today to be deeply involved in sexual sin. It destroys lives. So, you want to have a great life? Child of God, it's really not that hard, but it's very hard. Um, the answer is you need to walk with, walk with the Spirit, walk with Christ, obey the Father, live for Him, confess your sins, learn about um, what sins you are susceptible to, and learn where that point is, where the temptation takes over and where you step into the sin, learn all those things, uh, learn how to do what's right in every situation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for David's psalm. We thank you for David. Uh, we talked about his uh, horrible sin, but, the, but Scripture says that he was a man after your heart, the hero of the Old Testament. the one through whom our King, Jesus Christ, uh, would come. So he's a warning to us how easily we can lose the great life that you have really ordained for us to live in your presence. I pray that all of us here would remember that in your sight, we're great, that when we come before you, we have those crowns that we cast down. We cast them down because we realize they're really your wreaths. You're the victor. You're the conqueror. It's your righteousness. It's your gift that we exercise. It's your good works that we do. That in us, really, we can do nothing. So all of us really are nobodies without you. But with you, we're magnificent. Help us to remember that, that we're excellent that you look at us with fondness right now, that you are pleased with your children. We thank you for the redemption that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.